Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. We just don't know how bad it is. Aaron O'Toole being officially informed he was targeted, having family in Hong Kong. It had given us a sense of uncertainty. Brian Passifume joining us, reporter with the National Post covering this in Ottawa. Brian, good afternoon. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. What a week it was. And it's been a week with the stories. You know, I mean, you can't let it go. It's like a ball and chain around your ankle and all the other reporters. But I'm still surprised. David Johnson did not call an inquiry. And as I said at the top of the show, I, I, I'm also surprised at the reaction from the middle, the left, the right, the calls for the inquiry are just echoing across the country, Brian. Did it surprise you? Yeah, this is probably, it's 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 a unsurprisingly surprising or surprisingly <laughs> unsurprising, that's whatever you want to look at it. It's yeah, it, it definitely uh, it's definitely consumed the week with uh, you know follow up and reaction to this whole thing, and it's uh, it's rare for a week where uh, the House of Commons isn't sitting to be as busy for political reporters. But yeah, it's uh, it, it, I think the one thing that uh, kind of struck it for a lot of people is that this uh, this report has kind of uh, been a very rare moment of agreement for all the opposition parties, you know, from the Bloc to the Conservatives to to the NDP and, and miscellaneous. You know they're all they're all saying that yeah it, 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 this whole process was pointless. Everybody wants a wants a national inquiry into this, and uh, yeah, and they're not really buying the conclusions that uh, that Johnson came up with in this report about how uh, an inquiry would be pointless because it would be classified. Well, there's there's ways around it. There's different ways of doing it. It, it just really didn't uh, satisfy what a lot of people I think were hoping to get out of this. It's true. You know, I had a prediction, uh, somebody who worked in that line of national security, just kind of feeling that the prime minister may have to call an inquiry all on his own if this noise doesn't stop. Brian, are people considering that? Yeah, it really, it's, I think a lot of people were expecting an inquiry to come out of this. And, you know, it seems to them, this is surprising. I, I think that they've lost the, uh, I think they've lost confidence that uh, uh, sort of the current process and the current government is really taking a taking this seriously and b really looking to get to the bottom of this because the uh, you know the anybody who's read the report you know there it, it really it really draws no conclusions. There's a lot of well you know it's, this is the way it is and we can't tell you why so you know uh, you know take our word for it and uh, you know going into this uh, David Johnson uh, former governor general. Uh, preeminent Canadian, someone probably the most uncontroversial Canadian in those circles, you know, really, this whole report has kind of left his reputation in tatters with with how everything is going. So, yeah, really, uh, I I think that, uh, you know, some drastic things need to change for people who are going to start, you know, trusting this process. 
All right. I just want to dwell a little bit on the political opportunity here. And you're right. I mean, there was some strange bedfellows in this. And the calls just kept coming. Inquiry, inquiry. It's given a, a lot of ammunition, of course, to the conservatives. Pierre Polyev picking this up. And then we have news of Aaron O'Toole saying he's been officially, um, he's been told about his family and Hong Kong and himself being targeted. Michael Chong, very strong performance there. Brian, politically, this is a dance for the prime minister and maybe one he's never had before. Yeah, the, the, the whole the whole process of him, you know, sort of sidestepping inquiry and appointing a special rapporteur. Really, this is just an exercise in buying time. I think that mm-hmm. uh, I, I think the PMO was kind of hoping this would all go away and you know people would kind of forget about it because you know Ottawa has a very short memory. You know, mm-hmm. Whatever was a huge scandal a few months ago. You know, you have to, you know, to look mm-hmm. it up on Wikipedia to see what people are talking about. But yeah, it's, uh, it really is, uh, it, it, it was an exercise in sort of buying time, but I think that time for the PMO has run out. I think it's time for them to either uh, uh, be productive or get off the pot. Well, that's a dire prediction, Brian, but I'm sure a lot of Canadians would agree, as you say, I mean, kicking that can down the road. Here's the other thing that was mind-blowing. David Johnson talking about his next report. It's not until October. Stuff is going to happen, and I almost said another word instead of stuff there before October, Brian. I can't imagine we're all just going to sit in the corner until then. It's a family radio show, Arlene. <laughs> it is. I have to be reminded of that. Yeah, but unfortunately, you know, when it was sort of, you know, sort of covering this government, you can't help but to color your language with an expletive sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the this report that was released on Tuesday, it's, it's not the last step. This is only the first step. This is kind of the first step in the whole process. What's uh, going to be coming next is kind of a traveling roadshow of public hearings where people can uh, guess to show up and, you know, say their piece is not binding and won't help anything. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are criticizing Johnson for not stepping aside, saying, you know, this is, uh, you know, this process, uh, you know, needs someone who's uh, maybe a bit more impartial and a bit more distant. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of haze being made about, you know, the links between Johnson and the Trudeau family and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Johnson, uh, you know, reminiscing during the uh, press conference on Tuesday about uh, the salad days of him skiing with the Trudeau family. It didn't really help matters, but no. it really, it's, in Ottawa here, it's hard to, it's hard to go in a circle that uh, someone who's having some sort of a uh, ancillary knowledge or, or, uh, you know, or exposure to the Trudeau family. But uh, really, I, you know, I, I think that uh, it, impartiality issue that, uh, just won't go away from there's a lot of uh, political challenges now for the liberal government but as but uh, as Canadians we are wondering about our national safety as I said I mean our governments is supposed to keep us safe there is no inquiry of the David Johnson report so far it would be fair to say without any polling that it has not caused a lot of of easing of anxiety. There are many questions. I know I have many. And then there's the ominous calls for an inquiry and those in the know. As I mentioned, now we know Aaron O'Toole has been has been spoken to about the degree he was targeted and his family, Michael Chong, others, and Stephen Harper weighing in, saying that Chinese interference may have been much worse than we no, Charles Burton joining us, 
who is with the McDonald Laurier Institute, a former diplomat in Beijing, a professor of political science at Brock University. Charles, good afternoon. Thanks for being here. Good afternoon, Arlene. Charles, you and I have talked about China and Canada's relationship with China for a very long time. When David Johnson dropped his report, were you surprised? I said I was very surprised at the beginning of the show. Were you? Oh, yes. I was absolutely shocked uh, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, that he would reject all of the um, reports of Sam Cooper in Global News and Bob Fife and Steve Case in the Globe and Mail, who had been leaked documents by people in the security sector who you know, were frustrated that they had been issuing so many warnings to the government that had not been actioned. Um, you know, he dismissed all those as misconstrued. Uh, he says that, um, you know, he'd reviewed other intelligence, which suggested that all of those reports are not founded. Um you know, I, he had two months, interviewed dozens of people, had probably hundreds of relevant documents that he should have looked at, doing it with his executive assistant and uh, a lawyer, a distinguished lawyer, has the Order of Canada, Sheila Block, that we subsequently found out has been has donated $7,000 to the Liberal Party. So another unfortunate choice for this position. I don't think that he could really have done enough vigorous investigation to to uh, come to the conclusion they came to, which is that the Prime Minister and his ministers have never heard anything about uh, Chinese malfeasance, and that's why they didn't act. Um, you know, I, I think that he's probably a man of great honour, and if he looks the Prime Minister in the eye and says, did you know, and the Prime Minister says he didn't, uh, Mr. Johnson writes that down and would find it. Said, well, righty, you know, right, um, right, insulting, so. <laughs> insulting to say anything different, you know, that, to, to challenge him on that point. I think he's been flim flammed. He was definitely mm-hmm. the wrong man for the job. And I think it's time they got someone serious in, say, Richard Fadden or someone like that, to actually, you know, do a, a proper study, properly funded, go through everything and have people speak under oath, be subpoenaed to speak under oath, and that there will be consequences for people who lie or refuse to to give the full story. You know, that's the only way Canadians are going to get to the bottom of this. It's So I, I feel sorry for Mr. Johnson. I, I really do. I, mm-hmm. I just think that he's way out of his depth and way out of his time. Yeah, it is. I, I was very shocked, too. And as you mentioned, Richard Fadden, we talked with Richard Fadden, and he just believed this was just such a, an enormous wake-up call, really bringing up, too, that for many people, and probably yourself as well, that the motivation of the CSIS leakers has to be in their mind. Charles, you know, we know that they took a big chance on this. They could do jail time. If they're discovered, how will they feel right now, Charles? If you went out in a limb and this happened, I mean, many feel that they may leak again or make another move, or do they have anything else we don't know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if I was in CSIS and was aware of what's really going on and recognized that, you know, all of my investigations and information to government has been thrown into the back of a drawer in the prime minister's office and nothing will come of it. After getting Mr. Johnston's report, you know, I think more people would be emboldened to say, look, there's more here. You know, how much information do we have to leak until people really start getting the message? 
So I would expect there'll be an avalanche of further revelations coming through. At least I wouldn't be surprised. And everybody, uh, you know, the, the Chinese diaspora organizations, the Uyghurs, the Tibetans, the Hong Kong, the Tibetan activists are unhappy with Mr. Johnson's report. Nobody seems satisfied except um, the prime minister and the ministers of the crown and the senior civil servants who might be subject to investigation if there is a public inquiry. So, you know, that should say a lot about uh, what the next step is. And, um, you know, I just can't believe that this matter will be swept under the rug. And by the time Parliament comes back in September, you know, everyone will move on to other things and the Chinese government can continue to engage in these activities as they have been all these years. I, I, I just can't imagine that it could get that bad in terms of appeasement of the um, Chinese Communist Party's operations here in our country. I, I want to ask you, you know, I've, I've been referencing uh, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, who made comments uh, a little while ago, and, and they've become public saying he did, he believes that Chinese election interference may be far worse than what we know. I mean, there's just a feeling that this is this has just been growing like a noxious weed, and we've either not being paying attention or we were turning the other way, Charles? Well, I mean, when the Harper government came into power, I, you know, being an idealistic young man, I sent a memo uh, to the prime minister's office and got a couple of meetings there warning of exactly this. Wow. And, you know, not a lot happened. I mean, there are people within both parties who are sympathetic to the idea that we need to get the Chinese money out of the system and you know, don't have people who are thinking, well, if I if I go easy on China, maybe I'll have some good benefits after retirement from law firms or businesses that do work with China and so on, who otherwise I'd be toxic to if I had been a bit more vocal about China. Um, you know, this is not new news to, to me, or as you say, the stuff that's come out of the thesis revelations have been things that we've been talking about on your radio programs for years. It's just that getting it from CSIS seems to give it a kind of authority that previously, you know, people might have thought that I was just talking about circumstantial evidence or innuendo or whatever, but it's pretty true. It's pretty clear that it's absolutely true. So the question is, you know, the people who are have to be made accountable for this before we're going to take action against it. But, you know, the big statistic that came out on CTV last week was that China has 176 diplomats here in Canada and only 178 in all of the United States, 60 in Australia and so on. So, I mean, they have this enormous diplomatic cohort here, and I think it's because, you know, they're, they're, they're agents of the Ministry of State Security and the Chinese Communist United Front Work Department are able to operate here so freely and so successfully. You got it. And those numbers tell a story. What drove you to do that? What were you seeing? Well, I was seeing exactly what what we have now, which is, you know, far too many um, politicians who were apparently increasingly under the influence of the Chinese regime, which affected their their advice to government. Um, people who, you know, are not forthcoming about these connections. So I just felt that there should be some equivalent to a foreign influence registry act, so that people who are receiving funds from a foreign government while in a position of public trust or after they leave that position of public trust uh, should be declaring that publicly. And, and uh, you know, that wasn't happening. I think that 
it's like all our governments, there seems to be a split between those who you know, believe that we should promote prosperity mm-hmm. through doing as much with China as possible and the others who are more concerned about China's infringement on our security and sovereignty and feel that we should be addressing things like Chinese espionage and influence operations in the defense of our Canadian values and and uh, preventing our politicians from, you know, thinking more about what's good for China as opposed to what's good for Canada. So, you know, this has been an ongoing issue for a very long time for me. And uh, it's great to see that it's entered into the public domain. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners, you know, really understand that the government needs to now take some effective action to put an end to it. All right. Uh, let me ask you, you just said something that was really important. You said that you sent a note. You said you saw things or are you did you feel at the time that there were Canadians who were under the influence and didn't know it? I mean, when you say you were witnessing this stuff, did you get a sense that China was asking people to do their bidding? Well, you know, it, I think it's a very subtle process of a long period of engagement where they cast the net wide. You know, do you remember some years ago, the case of Bob Deckert, the uh, parliamentary Mm -hmm. secretary to Minister of Foreign Affairs, Baird, who, you know, had what was described as a flirtatious relationship with a New China News Agency reporter. Um, You know, clearly that it, it came out to light and, you know, nothing happened in terms of any betrayal of Canadian trust, but one could see the Chinese were maybe hoping that this thing could develop and that they could derive some strategic benefit to their intelligence services through um, Mr. Deckard. I, that would be my speculation. Um, that reporter I looked into quite closely, she had never actually published anything. So I don't think she was, uh, if she was a reporter, she certainly wasn't doing much reporting, but you know, she certainly was spending a bit of time uh, um, you know, engaging in flirtatious relationship with a man who was several decades her senior. It was all the rage, wasn't it, Charles? Not the flirtatious, not that we know it, although we've all watched James Bond and other things. We know what a honeypot is. But, Charles, we we were, you know, I was doing interviews with people for years about engagement. We had huge conversations about, as a country, what do we do about Beijing and the Olympics? Oh, if we engage, the economic rewards will be there. We will pull them along. It was a line of thinking that was pretty hard to cross at the time. And now, look where we are. Exactly. I mean, I remember the enormous controversy when Prime Minister Harper decided not to attend the opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympics. Yeah. Uh, Mind you, you know, four years later, when they had the opening ceremony of the Olympics in London, there wasn't a senior Chinese official, you know, above the level of deputy mayor of Beijing attending. So, uh, you know, it did seem as if there was kind of a double standard that we had to bend over backwards to show some kind of um, exaggerated respect for the Chinese regime, or we would lose opportunities to to diversify our economy away from our dependence with the United States. And, you know, that China is the rising power and therefore if you can't beat them, join them kind of thing. I think that attitude was there for a long time, but it's really come back to haunt us, you know, with the Colbrick and Spavor business and the economic coercion that China exerted on us to try and get us to do things their way. And, and now this extensive network of, of interference in our democratic processes by a foreign power that, been reported in the newspapers, you know, I think that uh, I think that finally we're we're getting the message that we we shouldn't be um, compromising our Canadian values 
out of a misapprehension that great benefits will derive to Canada if we do so. Household debt is on the rise in Canada. There's our headline. We're, we're looking at it. It's our country. But to find out that we have the highest household debt in the G7, well, that's not great. I have some ideas about why, and I think everyone has some ideas on how, how this is going to impact our life. And we know, is this making a precarious situation out of things? I have to just say, you know, covering this and the interest rates going high and so many people being very, very positive. No, you know, the debt to income ratio is great and this and this. And and then now look where we are. Honors, the highest household debt in the G7. Could it have something to do with the fact, I think we also have another honor, the highest housing prices. Wow. Little old Canada. We should be proud. We're going to talk about it. Barry Choi is joining us, a finance expert. Barry, good afternoon. Thank you for being here. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. I wasn't surprised. Were you? (laughs) Not at all. You know, if anyone's been following the economy since uh, you could argue the last recession in 2008, Canadians love debt and it just gets greater and greater every single year. Now we've got inflation going up. <laughs> it's shocking for many consumers out there, but for a lot of people who follow the news, it is not a surprise at all. It isn't, but I didn't think that we were different as a country from other countries. Apparently we are. I mean, look at America. <laughs> uh, we thought America's always bigger, bustier, better at all these kind of things. Yeah. I mean, look at them. They've had, uh, you know, they had their jingle mail and the housing crisis in 2008. Mm-hmm. I didn't think that we would beat them in there. Why do you think this is so, Barry? Well, I'm really glad that you brought up, you know, the jingle mail and the 2008 recession. Mm-hmm. So for people who are listening and just aren't familiar with the situation, when that happened, housing prices dropped uh, significantly in the U.S. because uh, obviously people were literally handing back or mailing their keys, hence the term jingle mail. Uh, so, but in Canada, it's really hard to actually default on your home. Uh, and what happened in Canada is, uh, the government actually reduced interest rates so they were super low. So it was actually cheaper to buy homes. Uh, so in the U.S., they're like, you know what? You guys took on too much debt. It's on you now. So they've defaulted. So if you even think about like the last, what's happened again in the last year, right? Even though interest rates are going up, you're not hearing about people defaulting. But what you are seeing in the news is like, oh, people now have 60-year amortizations because the banks are allowing them to do so. Uh, so, you know, what I'm getting at is, in the U.S., a, there's a whole generation that saw their families lose their houses. So the younger people are now like, you know what? I don't want a house or I don't want to buy a house as an investment. It's just a home. So that's really kept prices relatively stable. But in Canada, especially in Toronto and Vancouver, a lot of people just see it as an investment and, and the money will, will values will only continue to go up. So, so it's just a completely different perception that we have up here in Canada. It does. A certain, and that's very generational. I mean, there's certain people, it's an ATM machine. It goes up and up and up. You you know, all, somehow you grab that house no matter what you have to do. Yeah. And wonderful things will happen to you in the future. Magical numbers will be yours. It is really a slap across the face, Barry, if we've been living in a dream world here in Canada. Yeah, you could say that. And to be fair, you know, there are all other factors in play in Canada. You know, clearly we're not building enough homes. 
uh, where we're letting in uh, literally hundreds of thousands of immigrants every year, which is great for, for Canada's economy. But at the same time, if we have a short of housing stock, that doesn't really benefit anyone, right? Uh, so, but, you know, to go back to your point about living in the dream, yeah, I do think we're in this fantasy, especially with boomers in Canada who have only seen um, real estate prices go up. You know, my dad bought my, my childhood home for like 200000 in the late 80s. And me trying to explain to him that, yeah, the average cost of a home now is like in Toronto, $1.2 million. And just mm-hmm. he couldn't believe it. He didn't understand. And it was like, yeah, you haven't bought a home in literally 40 years. That's why, right? Yeah, it is. We do have the highest housing prices as well in the world. That's another honor we have here. Uh, the, the, the challenge is, is everywhere. But here in Canada, we seem to have really dropped the ball, Barry. Um, yeah, you know, I hate to say it, but politics is, is at play too. You, you know, like I was saying in the U.S., basically the government at the time like said, you know what, you guys are kind of on your own. You you spent too much on your homes. You're going to lose it now. And people found alternative ways to live, and that might have been renting. But here in Canada, over the last 15 years or so, every single time the government introduces a new rule that says, "Hey, we're going to make housing more affordable," it makes things worse. Or even recently, the the Ontario government said. We're going to get rid of rent control to encourage builders to uh, build more homes. Well, that obviously didn't help anything. More homes mm-hmm. weren't being built. Landlords have just increased rent. Exactly. And to be fair, yeah, I don't blame the landlords. They're within their right to do so. And if people are willing to pay more, like, why wouldn't you, right? But, like, y- y- you know, uh, no government will ever make any hard rules in place that will actually decrease the value of homes because they'll get elected out within seconds, right? No, it's true. And, and, and so many governments, and this is everywhere. It's even as soon as I arrived here in Atlanta, Canada, that's what they were talking about. You know, they're building homes. They're not being like affordable. It's all across the land. It's some kind of a Canadian thing here. But what changes this? Here, here's what worries me, Barry. It seems that. Stuff could happen here. Highest household debt. We know you keep referencing, as I have, uh, what happened in America. We're yeah. kind of learning as, as Canadians. Maybe we're not so different than Americans. We could learn it in this way as well. I think there's a lot of lessons that could be learned, but unfortunately right now there's too many outs for us. Uh, you know, you mentioned yeah, using yeah. your home as, a, as an ATM. 100%. You know, you can get a HELOC. It's interest payment only. So, you know, people who bought 10 years ago, they feel like they've made out like bandits. But if you're just constantly borrowing from your home, it doesn't matter if your home's worth a million plus or whatever. You're still borrowing from it nonstop. Or like I was saying recently with mortgages, now people can take amortizations longer. But eventually when they renew, they're going to have to come up with the cash. Uh, So it's just a really interesting time um, in Canada. And understandably, the government doesn't want anyone to default. Banks don't want to be homeowners. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it's, it's too much of a hassle for them. But, you know, when the total debt levels of Canadians exceeds their GDP, something's got to be done. And right now we're not seeing it from consumers or from the government. We've been following so carefully as a country and on this show as well, the wildfire situation. And there was a newness to part of it. We know it happens all the time. We know that storms happen all the time. We know that droughts happen all the time. But there's a sense there's individually they're all plausible, but there's a collective of this, isn't there? Hurricanes and tornadoes maybe in places that that weren't before and hot, dry and early causing the wildfires. And again, arriving in Atlanta, Canada and looking to the left of my rhubarb and there's these huge cracks like 
deep cracks and praying for rain out here in Atlantic Canada, getting the watering equipment out, the farmers, and worried at this time of year, it's always about it's too wet and will it be dry enough to plant? Is there something funny going on? And it, and in everyone's minds, from individuals to homeowners, to those who live on the coast, to those who are in the way of the wildfires, there has to be a sense settling on people. Do I stay or do I go? Or is this something new? Do I have to change everything I'm doing? We're going to talk about this. They did get some rain in Atlanta, Canada, but there is a worry from farmers, a worry from farmers also in Western Canada. Alan Melvin is joining us live here this afternoon, a sixth generation farmer from the Annapolis Valley and president of the Nova Scotia Federation of Agriculture. Alan, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Arlene. Thanks for having me on. There was rain in PEI yesterday, a lot of it, very cold rain. Did you get enough in Nova Scotia? Is this still a concern? Uh, Certainly parts of Nova Scotia uh, saw rain yesterday here in the Annapolis Valley. It kind of bypassed us for the most part a little. There was a a light shower for a short while, but uh, it depended a little bit on where you were in the province, I think, as to how much rainfall you actually realized uh, come day's end. So, uh, here in, like I say, here in the Annapolis Valley, there was there was very little. So we're still we're still uh, hoping for some moisture to come come in the in the next short while. How how is this affecting farmers? You know, when it gets too hot, uh, farmers get worried. When there's wildfires, and, and they get worried, hot and dry and early. But is this changing the mentality here? People looking and wondering if there's a pattern. Yeah, certainly. It certainly feels like there's some change afoot. Um, you know, we've we've seen a very dry spring here in Nova Scotia, and I think most of Atlantic Canada, um, which which on on one side is is good for planting and, and getting crops in the ground and not having to duck and dive around the the rainfall that we normally see. But on on the flip side, there's there's with that limited moisture, there's challenges in in terms of uh, germinating seeds and 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 then plants that uh, maybe transplanted to the ground. Uh, plants and trees and things like that. Um, they need the rain to maintain themselves and, and to thrive as well. So um, we, we we've had a lot of challenges this spring, and and like I, I think there, there there's a lot more. What I'll say is there's there seems to be a lot more climatic variability. Some springs will have uh, lots of rain, too much rain, and then others like this one, there just seems to be there seems to be no very little or no rainfall at all. So. As, a, as as farmers, we have to uh, we have to compensate for that to to ensure our crops grow. So that involves a lot of extra uh, time and resource, money, fuel, and such to to irrigate our crops and and try to help them thrive. But it's it's no substitute for uh, Mother Nature when she's uh, working. I'll say effectively for us. No, as as I was saying, when I got onto PEI, I saw the big watering machines that usually don't show up until the midsummer. Is there worry out there, Alan? Oh, absolutely. I think if this continues on through uh, through the well, we're almost the end of May now, I guess. But if it continues on through June and July and into August, which are are typically our drier times, we're we're going to be challenged to uh, maintain the 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 water utilization that we're currently using. You know. We're dipping into our water reserves that we normally would save for 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 midsummer use. So, uh, in in some cases, we might might have backup sources, you know, deep high deep uh, high volume wells and such. But 
Um, again, that that all adds cost and 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 labor challenges and 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 extra challenges around that to to get that water onto the crops and and the capital, the equipment that we need to do that when when uh, when things get as dry as they they are uh, kind of shaping up to be this year. And you say this year. Can you remember anything like this? Because on PEI, they're saying it's the was the driest spring on record. Is this something? Do you have a reference point, or are you starting to to take a look and go, uh oh, this this could be something new that hangs around? Yeah, I, I, in terms of historics, I don't have those. I haven't really made reference to those just with with the activity we've had going on this spring, but. Um, I think 2016 was was a pretty dry year as well, but I don't think the spring started off the same way. So, you know, every every year is different. Um, but I think the the general sense of the community and the industry is that, and I, I expect if you talk to a meteorologist, they would say that the the climatic variability and 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 uh, you know we get a lot. Of, sometimes we get periods of significantly heavy rainfall and then longer periods of drought. Um, there's a lot more variability in what the patterns that we're seeing uh, over the last, say, 10 to 15 years compared to maybe historic. So, um, yeah, there's certainly concern around that. And it seems to be shaping up that, you know, some when we get rain, we get a lot of rain, um, too much in some cases Mm -hmm. in a short period of time. And then on the flip side, uh, when things get dry, they get really dry. So that's where we're at right now. It's a really dry side. And and uh, and so it requires the management uh, that goes with that and, and the, the challenges with that. You're a sixth-generation farmer, so you know, I mean, you, you know the stories and, and just how agile you have to be. But it also dictates the kind of things that families grow and family farms grow. Is this this flashing across people's mind that they might have to change what they put in the ground now? I think you look at long-term trends, and certainly um, farmers are are making those those considerations and analyzing opportunities for uh, changes in crops. And um, you know, as an example, with uh, I guess the change, the warm it has warmed here in reality over the last probably twenty to thirty years. We're seeing farms such as a saffron farm on the south shore. So, um, and and the grape industry here in the Annapolis Valley is is really short of the polar vortex, I guess we had this this winter, but is really starting to thrive with the with the increased heat that we're seeing in in our in our microclimate here in the valley. So um, farmers are taking taking stock of of the the longer term trends and, and considering what uh, opportunities that provides and what challenges that may provide uh, may exist in the existing crops that we grow and, and adapting to that. So some of that is sometimes just varietal varietal changes in 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 the crops that you're growing, but in other cases it may be a uh, a complete uh, complete change in the crop that you've you've historically grown and what you're going to grow into the future. So and that that um, takes time, yeah. doesn't it? It does, absolutely. We've you know we've got our our processes, our and our equipment that are very much in many cases customized to the the crops that we're growing now. And and to transition takes a lot of uh, does take time and capital and investment to to make that change. And you know there's always a learning curve and and adapting to those to those things as well. So uh, it doesn't, it certainly doesn't happen overnight. And, and, and you have to kind of look at it over the long term, because if you make snap decisions in any given year, uh, the next year is going to do the complete opposite to you typically, uh, mm-hmm. if, if past presidents is, is any indication of future. So 
um, yeah, we we kind of consider as an industry, we look at long-term trends. Many farmers, I would say, look at long-term trends and, and opportunities that provides. All right. During the pandemic, there was such a sense, and I don't know how many times I brought that up, or guests have brought that up today for some reason. We're still adjudicating everything that happened. But there was a push for people to get more connected with how they get their food. And now, as you look around and see that the climate and the world may be changing, does that matter? Does it matter how people feel and know about how tough it is in the business of farming these days? Yeah, I think it's important to 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 have the consumer connected to the farmer. You know, from a farmer's perspective, we want consumers to be engaged and know where their food comes from and uh, that it's, it's grown in, in the best possible way for, for them and, and their families. So um, I think that's very important at the end of the day to have that connection. And, and just as a, an aside, you referenced covid um, in Nova Scotia, when COVID first hit and the borders kind of shut down, the province only had about roughly uh, the estimates were about two days of food on the on the grocery store shelves. So, we uh, we as a province and as a region really need to uh, to focus more on 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 buying local as most as much as we can and uh, ensuring we have a, a sustainable food supply into the future. So when events like that potentially happen again and borders close for some reason, you know, there's lots of global events that can happen. Um, that we have a more stable food supply here in the region. So, um, yeah, part of that is certainly having a, a good, strong connection with the consumer. And, and we're always happy as farmers to, to share how, our, how the food is grown and, and how it gets to, the, to the, the customer's plate at the end of the day. But it's it's terrifying, and we went through it in the pandemic. We saw those shelves, and we were we rely on so much stuff. We thought there'd always been food on the shelves. We thought that we could always you know, buy a house. Uh, everything kind of is, is changing all around us. Alan, as we look at food as well, and as we talk about these threats from the climate, you know, Atlanta, Canada, as you know, went through Hurricane Fiona. That is hanging all over. I know a lot of people here in PEI are talking about it. And the wildfire situation out west and all the headlines last year about those soaring temperatures on the east coast, on the West Coast, there's a there's a sense that Canada is waking up, not just to national debt, but to a change afoot. Would you agree? I I think so. Clim- from a climatic perspective, we're we're seeing change. Um, like I said earlier on the show, I th- we're on those long term trends. We're we're seeing more heat units in in the valley, for example, and I would say across the region. So when I say heat units, the amount of sunshine and 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 uh, degree degree hours or units we we see on a, on a average basis from month to month over the course of the spring, summer, and fall. So um, we're seeing that, um, and it, it's going to have an impact. You know what that final impact is is it is is a big question mark. I think right now what we're seeing is is that variability in, in weather trends, and and when we get a a rainfall, we get you know two inches of rain in, in four hours versus maybe an inch of rain over the course of a day, like a nice a nice a nice soft shower over the day, um, and then we get these severe droughts and and you know the the follow up wildfires and things like that that can come about. So. Um, yeah, I would I would say we're we're seeing we're seeing a change in the climate, and as farmers, you know, we're we're we're, we're trying to respond to that and, and continue to grow uh, safe, sustainable food for 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 our country and the population uh, that, that needs to eat. So, 
um, that that comes with you know we we look at different technologies and as I said before varieties and, and crops crop opportunities as well. But uh, yeah, certainly it feels like there's a change change of foot over the long term. But stuff grows in different weather. Annapolis Valley, of course, known for many things. One of the things is apples. And we know in certain fruit regions, that kind of weather doesn't suit them. It it breaks skins. And we know different fruits and vegetables work in, in different areas. And PEI is potatoes, also Nova Scotia as well. But to be agile means to turn again. I mean, you're sixth generation. You're going to have to turn from something that you've grown every year. And what do you grow, Alan? <laughs> yeah, so we grow um, we grow cauliflower, uh, green mm-hmm. onions, uh, some romaine, and and uh, and uh, cabbage and leeks as well. So um, vegetable crops primarily, and um, and so, I mean, over the generations, that certainly changed. Even from my father's generation to now, um, we, we've we've kind of adapted and pivoted just based on, uh, you know, market trends and, and weather trends to a degree as well. Um, so it's it's ever evolving. And you're right. Um, if the if the climate continues to evolve, you, some things end up being kind of pushed further north on, on in the country. Um, as an example, Christmas trees, mm-hmm. uh, a, a popular one is balsam fir, for example. And, and I think one of the long-term projections there is that, you know, balsam firs even possibly now don't, won't grow well here in the Annapolis Valley. You, you have to be in a more, uh, either closer to the coast, uh, like, uh, the South shore or further North where, where it's a bit cooler. Um, so, so we're seeing that in real time. And as I said earlier, you know, grapes have become a, a burgeoning mm-hmm. industry and there's much there's a growing opportunity there with new varieties and being able to grow varieties we haven't historically been able to grow here well so um yeah constant evolution and i think that's just part of part of uh part of the industry and our adaptability but also it is it, i would say it is a bit of a cause for concern over the long term how that impacts our our food supply here in the country well, we know, I know in Nova Scotia too, uh, there are um, people growing cauliflower. They have to leave it on the field because there's uh, not enough people to pick it or they have nowhere to, to take it. We're also looking at food waste, Alan, and not just in our kitchens, but on the field and farms as well. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's right. <laughs> and you, you brought the cauliflower topic. That's a challenging one. There's There's a lot that goes into that in terms of market demand and and grade standards and labor challenges and and the climatic piece um, all kind of at times come together to create um, uh, harvest challenges and yield challenges that result in crop being left behind. And, and that wouldn't be uh, singular to cauliflower by any means. Many of our horticultural type crops, our vegetable um, annual type crops would, would see that to some degree. Um, just based on weather trends, all of a sudden there's a potentially a, a lot of, of product, um, and, and the, the market just can't absorb it at the end of the day. So it, it's it's challenging to get it off the field and, and realize okay. the value. Um, so it, it gets left behind from time to time. So all right, that that that's the you know, there's a lot of variables that go into that, but it is a concern to the to us as farmers as well. We never want to see food go to waste, so it, no. it's a challenging issue. Yeah, it's hard to see. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. 
I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 